from KQED. This week's California Politics Podcast is more food imagery because I just can't shake it. The soup of the final two weeks of the legislature's session for the year. A lot of ingredients, but what? Say it. No soup for you. (laughs) It's not soup yet. This is our episode for Friday, September 4th. I'm John Myers of KQED News, along with in one studio this time, all of us, Anthony York of the Grizzly Bear Project, Marisa Lagos of KQED News. Like, did we ever disclose to the audience we've been doing this at different yeah, locations? Yeah, we always we tell did? them. We yeah. always tell them. Full transparency. Yeah. Full transparency here. Not yeah, today. The, the APIs are available. Geolocation software available. We all have iPhones. You guys can find us. Not legally, but, you <laughs> know. find us at <laughs> where in the world is marisalagos.org. <laughs> so Creepy. <laughs> that's another podcast. This podcast, uh, two broad topics. Um, as I said, the swirling soup of the 11th hour deals and negotiations at the Capitol. Highlighted by yet another leadership change this week. And our second topic, bills of note that either went to Governor Jerry Brown or were signed by the Gov this week. And, of course, our weekly political side dish. Um, Okay, so let's get cooking. There's some danger in taping a podcast on a Thursday, putting it out on a Friday when the legislature is this close to all the deals. So we're going to put this one out a little early. You're hearing it. Hey, lucky you, just in case we get scooped. There's nothing worse than, like, saying X will happen, and then the podcast goes out and X didn't happen. That would have sucked. Um, let's start with leadership. Second week in a row, a new Republican legislative leader. Um, although this one doesn't actually get the job until January. Assembly member Chad Mays, a Republican from Yucca Valley, which is the gateway to Joshua Tree National Park. Yes. Beautiful Joshua Tree. We <laughs> Go see the desert in bloom in springtime if you haven't already. Also home of a lot of strip malls and other... Uh... Chain restaurants. Okay, so that's a ringing endorsement <laughs> there from the gal from San Francisco. No, my husband's from down there. I, I oh, spent a lot whatever, of time. Whatever, one percenter. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Assemblyman Mays becomes Assembly Republican leader in January. Uh, caucus voted Tuesday. He replaces, or will replace, I should say, Assembly Member Kristen Olson of Modesto, who just became leader last year. Uh, here's what uh, Assembly Member Mays said when um, I and our L.A. Times friend Chris McGarry, and we're both bugging him out in the hallway the other day about being the new leader. This was uh, just before the caucus vote. You know, I think uh, Kristen has done a phenomenal job. And so you talk about with doing, doing things differently. I'm not sure there's anything that we can do differently as far as uh, organizationally. We've done some of the, the, the structural changes already. Once I become leader and we sort of take the whole viewpoint of the organization, we'll go from there. So Chad Mays is a freshman, which uh, I want to talk about here in part because he's one of those new crop of uh, potential 12-year legislators, those that could serve 12 years under the modified term limits. So what what do we make of this? I mean, he's not taking over yet. Gene Fuller did take over in the state Senate as Republican leader last week. Maybe that one's different. You know, is this just inevitable, even though Olson's only been leader for a year, but she has other ideas? I mean— what does it say, if anything? Well, I think I do think that the Senate and the Assembly changes were different. I mean, my understanding is that Huff and a couple of other Republicans have made some noise that they might be willing to support some taxes on some of the special session stuff and that this may have been the result of that. Um the Fuller taking over. I, the maze thing. Yeah. The fact that it's delayed till January, the fact that. Olson is going to be running against a pretty moderate Democrat, Kathleen Galgiani, for Senate. I mean, it may have more to do with that than really anything else. Um, You know, they want to get this stuff wrapped up when everybody's still in town. But it was a bit odd that it all happened within a couple days of one another. And I think it made everybody kind of scratch their heads. Also, Mays is, you know, not a known quantity to a lot of people I saw. 
one former Republican <laughs> tweet ahead, out. Him. <laughs> former Assemblyman Jeff Gorell. Yeah, who's now a deputy mayor in L.A., tweet out, I had to Google Curtis Mays, which is... Chad. 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 <laughs> well, there you go. Shoot. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Curtis Mayfield. Leader, sorry, yes, <laughs> sorry, leader elect. Um, so what, what we'll we get ma- to know you. Well, it's we okay. I'm sure that Chad Mays had to Google Jeff Gorell. <laughs> True. Short time. But um, who's a good follow on Twitter and whatever. But uh, but it, look, it, I think the common thread in those leadership changes is that it's very hard once you've declared your candidacy for another office to hold a leadership position. Your your needs are different. There's a sense, and and also in terms of the timing. Look, these. This is the last time. Uh, you know, next week. There's only one more week for these guys to be together uh, before January. And if you have the votes, I mean, everyone knows there's an inevitability to the change. And you know, and uh, Assemblyman Mays was just able to put it together. And it's this is sort of more of the 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 common um, the common uh, timing of us, right? Where you see sort of a leader elect mode. What's interesting about it is he's under the new term limit rules, and how long will it be before there's another change in the Assembly Republican Caucus? And I think that's um, you know that'll be true when we see a new speaker. Uh, the Senate still has some term limit issues. Well, he but. he certainly has the ability to influence where the caucus is going for a while. A because of that, and then B because he would come in at the beginning of that 2016 election cycle, and the Republican leader, you know. Uh, has great sway, makes lots of decisions about how the caucus is going to vie for legislative seats, who they'll defend, how they'll defend them, what seats they'll try to pick up. You know, it's um, I think it's worth pointing out that uh, Mays' chief of staff uh, is Joe Justin, a longtime Republican political consultant. He's done a lot of IE work. He did some in 2014. Uh, he knows the lay of the land. Mays is going to have him there, either in his official work or in his work outside of that. Um, and 2016 is a big deal. The, the, the Republicans in the assembly uh, did a pretty good job at finding a couple of places to to win in 2014, knocking off some vulnerable Dems who may or may not have um, been able to hold those seats even without it. So it's, it's, it's interesting. I think, again, for that freshman perspective, the long-term view, Republicans are looking for some place to have some continuity. Maybe Chad Mays is the guy. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, it's interesting, too, when you look at the sort of optics of the Senate leadership. I mean, both Huff and Fuller, I think, um, represent an older guard and have been a lot more sort of uh, vocal on things. I mean, I think Olson was seen as a very big change from her predecessor, Conway, in just terms of personality politics. Um, And so, but the interesting thing is, all the rumors we're hearing is that the the house that it's going to be harder to get any fees or taxes in is the assembly. So despite, you know, these these younger members, despite the fact that they maybe are more willing to at least sit down and talk, um, or at least it, it appears so, it doesn't seem like there's actually any deals being struck. No. And they've, you know, made clear that they're both both Olson and um, the new leader have made clear that they're not going to go to bat on the, or, you know sit down on this. So, yeah, it's it's kind of fascinating. And I think we all were expecting maybe a little bit more of a shakeup when we heard that this was happening. And then it was kind of like in January. Yes. You know? So we'll we'll see where it goes. Uh, and never remember Gene Fuller wasn't supposed to take over until right. until after session. But uh, there doesn't seem to be a big divide between Mays and Olson. Yeah. Congrats to the new leader elect. And we'll uh, we'll see if there are any more leadership changes. We got, you know, hey, a few days. Why not? Well, uh, we 
we mentioned last week, I mean, Atkins sent out a letter, the speaker saying, don't don't change me. Right. <laughs> don't do this till next year. Don't so. change me. Leave me don't just like me. I am. Uh, so let's go to some of the moving parts, um, kind of back and forth, the soup, as I've been calling it, of these final few days of the legislature. Uh, we got to start with the one we've talked about a lot, Senate Bill 350 and, of course, Senate Bill 32, which is the other part of the big climate change push by Democrats in the state Senate. Uh, every day brings something new as we're sitting down to tape this on Thursday. More of the buzz that we've been hearing over the last few days that there is movement on one part of the SB 350 package, the renewable energies part, the way utilities get treated under under that, uh, the relationship between uh, big utilities and these community choice uh, associations, these collaboratives in cities and communities of, of um, having energy provided to customers. There's a lot of that movement out there. The week began on Monday with... Um, Leaders of the Catholic Church talking about the papal encyclical on climate change with the leader of the state Senate, Kevin DeLeon. In that event, DeLeon was asked a little bit about where the negotiations stand. Uh, here's a little of what he said. I, I think right now um, that uh, I, I am working um, uh, very respectfully, feverishly, uh, engaging the members uh, on the other side. Uh, I think we're having very fruitful, uh, uh, productive conversations right now. I think the weight of the historic nature of this measure, and let me underscore and emphasize the following. This bill is not Kevin DeLeon. This bill is larger than me. It's larger than the governor. It's larger than everyone else put together because the, the, the impacts are not just regional, state, or national, but they're international. So that notion that um, there's a historic element to this. And then I think also, too, you know, DeLeon um, maybe trying to kind of push back on the narrative that there's a lot riding for him on this or Jerry Brown riding on this. But this is a complicated issue. And, you know, we reference this, these, these, um, these buzzings that are growing ever louder here as we sit down on Thursday about the renewable energy part. But you don't hear that about the petroleum part, about the part of a petroleum right. use, which remains the big sticking block for the oil company mm -hmm. and a fairly noticeable uh, block of legislators as to whether or not they're going to approve it. Yeah, I mean, that that is the big piece. That's the the sexy piece of, of SB three fifty. I don't know. Is there a sexy piece to environmental legislation? Maybe. Sure. 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 Yeah, this is uh, demented listenership out there. Right. Think I mean, so. They're listening to us. So fair <laughs> enough. And that still is unresolved. I mean, in terms of the t and you know, there have been questions about whether this might be put off, whether this is too big of a bite for this year. I do think at least part of the pressure is the fact that there's a, a big climate a global climate change conference in December. Um, you know, I, I think the governor would like to have this as a notch in his belt, if possible, as would the, sen the, the Senate leader, I imagine. I imagine they'll both be in Paris this winter. Uh, Just want to reiterate, I will go to Paris if you need somebody. Okay, to good. We've bravely we've, we've decided Marisa has volunteered. Gosh, she's so I've, good about I've that. I've decided that Paris is more fun without the governor. No That's offense. That's true. But let me let me let me ask this question, which is one that 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 seems worth contemplating on a politics podcast, which is, um, you know, we all know that the reality is in a place like the state capitol, in any kind of back and forth negotiations, when you put your mark on a bill, like De Leon has put on SB three fifty. Um, or the governor, frankly, has put on these issues, it becomes targeted and people use it for leverage and they leverage a lot of different things. And every deal you make to change the language can tick off somebody who was on your side who doesn't like what they would see as watering down. I mean, it's a really delicate dance 
under the time frame and when the stakes are so big, both on the policy and the, the politics. Yeah, which is why, and I know we're going to talk about the other special sessions a bit later, but I just, it feels like this one issue is really sucking all the air out of the room in terms of other big questions that purportedly were going to be decided before the end of this legislative yeah, session. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. Right. I mean, like, do you have the capacity to do other things when everybody's doing this? It doesn't feel like it. I mean, this... Come on, it's early, man. You got a week. And Come that's on. True. But this How is many times really... have you guys done this, really? I understand that. But it does seem like what you're saying. When you have both one leader and the governor's administration, to some extent, really staking you know, their claim around this bill, and you have so many big industries and uh, groups involved in it, I mean— it just seems like there's this is where a lot of the energy is being focused. And ah, but I'm bummed. Energy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but yeah. to the point, I mean, like, I mean, some of these amendments about um, about the renewable energy part. And, and again, energy policy is like one of my least favorite things to try to figure <laughs> out as a reporter because it is so complex. You're not supposed to admit that, John. I'm just, hey, I'm fully transparent in this thing. But I mean, like I saw some of these amendments from somebody uh, in the capital community at like 3.30 in the morning uh, yeah. this morning that were sent around, that were being distributed. And it is such deep, difficult stuff. And, Highly and again, technical. And again, the political lift is big. I mean, yeah. you know, we've talked again about these uh, legislators, mostly Dems, who are kind of in the middle. Very nice piece. Shout out to our friend Melanie Mason at the L.A. Times this week is a profile of Henry Perea, the kind of the leader of these groups or these guys kind of called the Valley Crats in some ways. But I mean, you know, really kind of uh, difficult d- for them to to get on board with some of the more aggressive uh, policies in it, it's a lot to pull off. Yes, eight days or however many days, five days left. It's a lot to pull off, though. Yeah, and and it may and it may be that the votes are not there. You know, um, this year, and it would be interesting to see what, if anything, what sorts of political ramifications and mm-hmm. repercussions that might have for oh, I don't know, the ballot in twenty sixteen. I mean, mm-hmm. if this issue was on. If SB 350 were on the ballot, say, uh, you know, what what would that look like? What would that do in a, in a you know, given the turnout of you know the highly democratic electorate that's expected? But to your point, I mean, the, on energy policy, it's highly technical, and and all these technical changes have multi billion dollar implications. I mean, you're talking big big business, and that's why you know we get these buzzwords like you know, there's the banking piece of SB 350, and us political folks, we we understand that that's one of the bargaining chips, but we might not understand the details of or the significance of what that means. And dare we say it, one of the biggest changes in the history of energy policy in the state, deregulation, right. happened at the end of session. Passed unanimously at the end of session. And how'd that work out? Uh, not so hot. <laughs> well, and also, though, I do think, to your earlier point, while these are clearly huge issues and there are a lot of you know big money stakeholders at the table around the energy aspect, it does seem like the petroleum aspect is really the bigger sticking point because it seems like the utilities and some of the other energy folks have been willing to play ball in a way that we just haven't seen, as John said, anything materialize around this huge goal for petroleum that is such a threat to the oil industry and that they've been very out there on both publicly and behind closed doors to fight. And so... Like the catalytic converter. Like the catalytic converter was like the tailpipe emissions was... I mean... You know, yes, I agree. I agree that it's definitely the the big political lift. It's because of the power of the oil industry, not just within the Republican Party, but within the Democratic right, exactly. Party. Uh, and and they, 
that's that's why when they when there's seemingly not a whole lot going on and you look at the big expenditures uh that the oil industry makes you know it's it's in part for years like this you know one, it's mm-hmm. one quick thing i would say i want to get some of these other uh, bills in is just that again i think the the really interesting part to watch over the next few days and this is not rocket science is the role of the governor and who goes in and out of the governor's office and how much shuttle diplomacy he is doing and what calculation he makes about how many yeah. arms he twists and his relationship with the business community, the oil industry, what he is willing to fight for in 2016 and beyond. I mean, And what he, he's willing to give up. Yeah, you know? he is in so many ways a very interesting player in this because he's got to figure out as the ostensible leader of the Democratic Party in California too, right, what he – what he's willing to do and what the price is for people who are Democrats who don't go along. So, I don't know. do we think this is the biggest, the biggest uh, lift the governor has has attempted? Mm. I mean, I don't know that like way. realignment. Well, the ta- tax stuff was hard. I mean, all of well, that, that stuff didn't that work he, out. Legislative. Oh, you mean in terms of something that would be successful? Or? No, I mean, well, the, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, he had the failed effort in 2011, but since then, you know, for the the mega deal. But since then, he's had a pretty good track record on big stuff, right? Whether you're talking about uh, redevelopment agencies or workers' comp, there have been big lifts in the legislature. But is, this, is this one the biggest? Well, yes, in the sense that if only, no, if transportation and healthcare can get done, those actually might be bigger lifts, I would say, in terms of actually twisting arms and getting, because the two thirds issue. But that's my point. Like, can. Can all those things happen in the same week? I don't know. So I think this is among the bigger lifts. Um, but I guess I would I, I don't want to answer that until I see what the final product is because it depends on what they give away. So I mean, this could get watered down to a point where right. De Leon and the governor can still act like it's something that they wanted, but it's not really meeting the goals that they set out. Yeah, there's of course there's political risk there too. Okay, podcast audience, you can get on Twitter. I got an idea. Hashtag Jerry's biggest lift. You tell us. You think it's the biggest lift? Let's see if Anthony's right here. I, I'm just curious because it is a really no, good I, question. I asked the question. I, yeah. I don't have a definitive answer. But... Yeah, we, we don't know everything as reporters. So Jerry's biggest lift. Hashtag it. Who the heck knows? I want to talk about a couple other things before we uh, get too far down the field uh, and we, we stop Mr. York from his uh, lunch engagement here in Sacramento. Sorry for having a life. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> We're paying you so much. Right, so, Marisa, right. you referenced the transportation stuff in the special session. Boy, Nothing seems like it's going on except some nastiness. I mean, yeah. and we saw some of that this week. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of rhetoric this week around how to fix the crumbling infrastructure that is allegedly at the top of everybody's list. Allegedly. <laughs> but no indication that Democrats are making any headway convincing skeptical Republicans. Um, so first we saw Democrats kill Senator Bob Huff's plan to use $1.9 billion in cap-and-trade money for roads. I mean, we all knew that was a non-starter, but of course, you know, Huff and others came out pretty— Angrily. And then we saw Caltrans, an agency, write an unusually strongly worded open letter to the Republican caucus. I mean, that clearly came from the governor's office, um, in which they repeatedly invoked Reagan's legacy of supporting fees and taxes for transportation infrastructure, attacked the Republican plan to take money from the general fund as irresponsible, and then listed the reforms that they say they've already accepted there. The Republicans hit back. Um with an even snarkier letter. Well, they and they actually started the week because they had a press conference on Monday, Assembly Republicans saying nothing has happened. Right. Special session. Where is going Countdown. on transportation? Yeah. Right. And that was one of my favorite uh, 
you know, from the Republican response to the Caltrans letter a few days later, we applaud the administration for publicly engaging in the discussion. It's about time as your response came 75 days after the special session was called. So <laughs> not a lot of love happening here. Um, and you raised, the- But you raised the question this week. I think you, you raised it on Twitter. You opened in a question, too. Like, I mean, is this dead in the water? I mean... I'm not optimistic. I mean, I, no, you can never say that until everybody until you know, last gavel. is on the plane, right. literally. But <laughs> I do think that given the rhetoric this week, given the sort of lack of any movement. Now, as I said earlier, I do think that there could be a potential to get something through the Senate. I have not heard any indications that any Republicans in the Assembly are willing to play ball. So, well, if for no, no other reason than the hurdle is lower in the Senate. I mean, basically, you got to get a Republican. To pass on something that would be in the two-thirds universe, it's, it's it's of course it's only like two in the assembly, but two is harder than one. It's a hundred percent harder. Yeah. Wow. Good. Okay. Solid math. So um, let's talk about um, some of the bills that made it through the legislature and onto Governor Brown's desk this week, um, and then bills that were actually signed into law. So we're going to pivot here to our second amorphous topic on the California Politics Podcast. At this time of year, everything feels kind of squishy, large. Not really defined topics. Um, I want to begin with SB 358, which was the much-talked-about California Fair Pay Act. It was authored by State Senator Hannah Beth Jackson, Democrat of Santa Barbara. Now, the governor's made it clear that it's going to get signed. Um, And so it went to his desk this week. I want to play a clip of uh, what Senator Jackson said in the floor debate on the bill here this week. California has prohibited gender bias in this state since 1949. But because of loopholes that have existed in this law, women continue to be paid less based upon gender. Indeed, women make 84 cents to every dollar in this state. And women of color do far worse. African-American women make 64 cents to every dollar. Latinas, 44 cents to every dollar. I think this is an interesting bill um, for a couple of reasons. One, the policy is much talked about in terms of um, pay and what we talk about so many times in income inequality has very much a a gender element to it that isn't always talked about. But this is a great example of compromise, of something that, you know, in the past when we talk about, you know, a new burden on employers, it gets to be really ugly. But there was a deal struck where the chamber and other business people found language that worked for them about trying to justify wage disparities in some way. I mean, it's it's a very interesting um, difference than everything else we've talked about in terms of like, here's something that's really interesting and that it is being touted as will be one of the toughest in the nation in terms of mandating this and making sure that people aren't penalized, especially women at work when they ask about salaries or talk about salaries. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was really interesting that they were able to not only get you know, the chamber to lay off, but to get bipartisan support on it. Also interesting was there was a few mod Dems who didn't vote on the bill, which I thought was especially interesting given given that dynamic. Um, But yeah, and, uh, you know, I got to say, as somebody who's a little um, a little skeptical about the ability of these types of laws to work, when you do look at the details, I mean, it is definitely a bigger step than anything we've seen before because of this issue that it says essentially comparable work. So the example we hear a lot of is, you know, that 
a maid at a hotel, typically a woman, might not be paid as much as a janitor or a hotel, typically a man. And instead of just a hotel being able to say, well, they're janitors and they're maids, now you could actually say, no, these are basically similar jobs and bring that forward. Also, the mechanism to, you know, to anonymously complain to the state to launch these investigations, I think it's huge because a lot of employees don't want to be the one sticking their neck out for obvious reasons. So um, it'll be interesting. It was also just interesting that, you know, the governor's chief of staff, Nancy McFadden, put out there so early he was going to sign it. They don't usually do that. I thought, um, you know, it's not a message to the legislature to get it there early. Yeah. And I think I think, again, how this plays on the national level and and who takes credit for it, but also what it does will be interesting to it's it's a it's a really interesting, nice kind of 2016 moment, too, where you go back to the voters and you talk about something that gets into this thing about wages and what working people are paid. And again, women have lots of challenges in the workplace. I think it's going to be a very interesting possible part of the narrative. Oh, and we'll see if there's a, a woman on, on either ticket this year. I, I think a couple of months mm-hmm. ago, it seemed like it was all but guaranteed. Uh, I think it's still highly likely, but that, you know, that could so impact So you're, you're talking about Carly today. Fiorina? Yes, indeed. Okay, good. Okay, just want to make sure you know. Highly likely Carly Fiorina. Okay. Yes. <laughs> one, Senator Fiorina. One, one more bill to talk about. Uh, this one actually signed by the governor um, because I think it has an interesting electoral uh, element to it. Assembly Bill 1100 by Assemblyman Evan Lowe of, uh, of the Bay Area of Campbell, which raises the initiative filing fee, the fee that people pay to file an initiative from $200 to $2,000, uh, prompted by the uh, very bizarre anti-gay initiative filed by an Orange County attorney that talked about legally murdering gay and lesbian uh, Californians. Um, Jerry Brown has been very reluctant to sign anything that that has tinkered with the direct democracy process in California. All these kinds of things about signature gatherers and uh, all these other elements to the process, yet signed this one very quietly into law. And there are critics who say that the $2,000 threshold is too high. Um, just guess he found one that he liked. Well, I, but I think this is sort of a, a tacit admission of what what the initiative process has become, right? I mean, an it, industrial complex. To totally. Borrow the phrase. Yeah, the political industrial complex, and in the and that it's it's often spillover for the fights that are not resolved in the legislature. That you have the same well moneyed interests who uh, who m- monopolize the the uh, the legislative process. Um, occupy most of the space in the initiative process in the initiative world as well, and so um, it's all politics, right? And so, and and the only real change that this will have, I mean, look, it takes it takes seven figures to get an initiative passed in this state anyway. Um, the only change that this will have is some of the some of the less serious uh, initiatives, uh, weeding some of those out earlier on. And there are costs involved. I mean, these things all have to be analyzed yeah. by lawyers and by and by the legislative analyst. And so even the jokiest initiatives have to go through some, re- they eat up some real um, some real uh, work hours on the state side. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the actual estimate of the cost was like 8000 or something way higher than the two grand. I mean, right. I understand the idea that, you know, this is supposed to be grassroots and that any citizen should be able to. But the reality is if you can't get two grand, you're not going to be able to put something on the ballot to get the money to actually get the signatures to do it. And, you know, I think that what this really came out of was that anti-gay horrible initiative earlier this year that called for, you know, homosexuals yeah, as to we were be killed. About. You know, so it's like, and that I think really was an impetus. But, you know, we were surprised. I mean, John and I had just been speaking a week before about how we could totally see the governor 
uh, vetoing this. And it just goes to show you, you really never know what's going to come sus- out of Jerry's uh, I suspect pen. that it won't be the last thing we hear about all of this. I, I, I suspect that there's still going to be some come back to talk about preserving some ability for grassroots groups and people, because I do think it goes back to the historical heart of the direct democracy, even though, of course, um, we've gone far afield of that, as Anthony said. But it was a very interesting moment. And and most pressingly, we will see how it impacts not really the 2016 cycle, because a lot of those initiatives are out there, although not all of them, but um, in the next couple of years from that. So let's have a quick political side dish before we wrap out of here. Um, I'm going to go first. You can find me on Twitter at John Myers. And just a quick little moment. Um, I think every political reporter in California had a moment of like, oh, well, that's better than we were, even though we still want more this week, which was uh, a new search engine rolled out on how to search campaign uh, contributions in California. Um, the Cal Access system by the Secretary of State's office has been maligned for a very long time. And Rightfully so. Rightfully so. so. Uh, It's it's a very archaic system. It's very hard to search how money is given, contributions from people to people, how it all goes. This is a new search engine. It doesn't change the structure of that, but it uses the data in a different way, developed in part by MapLite with a grant from the Irvine Foundation. Uh, You can find it on the Secretary of State's website now called Power Search. It's, It's interesting, and I think it will be fun to look at um, new ways for us to find the data of who's giving money and how they're giving money. So um, check it out. Could be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, all of us are going to be on it. And yeah, no, checked it out. Yeah, and what do you think? Uh, it's, de- I mean, definitely better. There, are, like you said, there are things, things we want more. So we're never sports, pleased, but we're like we are the <laughs> the micro nerds when it comes to to campaign finance. And so, uh, but you know, any any improvement is uh, is certainly welcome. All right, so uh, let's go to Marisa Lagos for Side Dish. You can find her on Twitter at mlagos. Uh, what you got? I have the brand new Future Caucus. You need like quotes. Star Wars music or something there. But anyway. okay. uh, <laughs> this was uh, introduced or announced by Assemblywoman Lingling Chang from Diamond Bar, Republican, and Assemblyman Evan Lowe, a Democrat from Silicon Valley. Um, here is what uh, Assemblywoman Chang had to say. I really believe that this caucus has the ability to shake up the political status quo here in Sacramento in a way that positively changes how we look at policy and how we tackle the issues before us. So the idea behind this is really that younger millennial voters aren't as sort of partisan and uh, are really more interested in collaboration and innovation and that this caucus is going to be where that uh, happens in Sacramento. Um I think it's a good idea. I'm I'm a little doubtful that they're going to find any bigger common ground than we already see on some bipartisan issues. Um, but, you know, it is it is a new class of lawmakers. And I think that just the fact that they're willing to kind of sit down at the table is uh, it's a big thing. So I'll I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and see. We're excited to see what comes out of it. And um I hope any doubts that I have are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's a generational change. But, yeah, I mean. You don't really feel the warm and fuzzies in politics very often, so. No, I mean, there there are a lot of issues that I think both parties can get behind. I think the, the question always gets to, how do you pay for the fixes? And so, you know, we'll see. Um, but add it to the list of caucuses in Sacramento. <laughs> so let's go, let's go to Anthony York for his side dish. You can find him on Twitter at AnthonyYork49. And I think Anthony's going to 
take us on a different mode to wrap up. Yeah, a, a little bit of a serious note. Um, our friend Julie Soderland, a former spokeswoman for Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, 37 years old, announced this week that she's uh, that she's dealing with stage four melanoma and has launched a new blog. It's a terrific read, you know, worth following, um, you know, and proud of her really for, for going public uh, with this stuff and, and documenting this fight publicly. It's not easy. And so... Just a, a little, a little shout out uh, from from the podcast family here that uh, yep. that we're all thinking about you, mm-hmm. Julie. So love and prayers to you, and and congratulations to him, and congratulations on the on the blog. It, it, I know that takes a lot, so uh, we're all rooting for you and following along closely. Yeah, absolutely. D- ditto to that. Anybody yeah. who lived through the Schwarzenegger era saw Julie here, um, tireless person who worked with the press and with others. Uh, got nicknamed Thumbs yes. by John Burton <laughs> because she was one of the first Classic. BlackBerry people who was back there typing on her BlackBerry during press conferences. Uh, but yeah, a, a lot Thumbs. of people wishing Julie the best. If you're on Facebook, you can see the hashtag Team Soderland, S-O-D-E-R-L-U-N-D. And yeah, ditto. We're thinking about you. You know, keep on going, Julie. We're uh, hoping the best there. That is the end of this California Politics Podcast. Uh, next week, just a quick programming note. We're going to probably do a short version on Thursday because the soup is still stirring at the Capitol with final bills. And then the following week, a special wrap-up. What the hell was all of that stuff at the Capitol stuff? So two weeks of programming notes. Uh, As always, thanks for listening.